Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. It is the middle of August, officially rest and relaxation season. I've been enjoying it. Obviously, you know, still hard at work uh, writing up the top 100, but uh, got some good sunshine this past weekend. I was feeling great about life. As I've mentioned previously, meditation really does wonders for your uh, mentality, and, and I've been in a great mood. So I thought, what better time than this to discuss with you uh, on a podcast which NBA head coaches who slave away at their job 20 hours a day, seven days a week through an 82-game schedule are going to lose their jobs this season. I mean, what a perfect topic for a beautiful summertime podcast. Yeah, it's a great way to build on all the positive vibes of the past few weeks, all the mindfulness you've been building up in random parks around Los Angeles. Um, I'm into it, and I just want to add, it is the dead of the offseason. I am currently on vacation, but it's raining where I am, and I really enjoyed today getting a second email from you because you emailed last week soliciting uh, feedback for the rough draft of the top 100. And then I got a second email this morning because I had ignored the first one. But I really enjoyed going through the top 100 this the, like today as I, as I sat here on this rainy day in Massachusetts. Uh, it was a great diversion. And you know, it's one of the great traditions that we have is is me sending back all kinds of sincere feedback plus some snarky feedback, all of which will be in, uh, completely ignored by you and Rob Mahoney. But uh, but it does. It's like it's kind of a rite of summer for me. Yeah, the other great tradition is you just repackaging the email into a column and, and putting it out the day after we <laughs> we post the top 100 and just calling it good and uh, you know publicly lashing us for our takes. Look, we've teased the top 100 enough. I want to stay focused on this hot seat discussion because if there's anything this country doesn't need right now, it's two more people yelling out, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. We, we've got plenty of that going on right now, but... It's such a fascinating topic because we have a whole bunch of new head coaches, and I feel like those guys are probably safe in year one. I'm not sure if we have any candidates for guys who are going to get their new jobs and then just immediately get popped. So I'm curious to hear, like, who do you think are the most likely guys to enter this season sort of on that hot seat or facing the most pressure, the most scrutiny, who should maybe be looking over their shoulder here uh, you know, in the coming season? Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked because, like I said, it's raining here and I've had more time to prepare than normal. And uh, so I, I actually broke it down into a couple different categories for you. Oh, so, wow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Listen to this preparation. We're all impressed. Go ahead. <laughs> all right. I first of all want to thank the helpful Wikipedia article, which lists all current NBA head coaches. Uh, so that was nice and easy. And the first category I had was ice cold seat, people who are definitely not getting fired. That's Greg Popovich, Brad Stevens, Steve Kerr, Rick Carlisle, Eric Spolstra, and Quinn Snyder. Those guys are completely untouchable at this point. And I did have one sort of 
question that goes along with that category. Can, so can we have a quick diversion before we get into the people who are getting fired? That's fine, but can we also point out that you said Steve Kerr definitely wasn't going to come back this season during the finals? <laughs> it was an, it was another one of your layers of trying to break up the Warriors dynasty where you're basically just trying to vote people off the island even though they're completely happy and comfortable and earning millions of dollars. I believe he got an extension this summer. So we should note here that the hedgehog, you know, the, the greased pig, went from Steve Kerr is gone to now Steve Kerr is on an ice-cold seat in the span of two months. You know what, man? I'm not going to let you hang that on me entirely because you were right there with me in the middle of that Rocket series saying, you know what? If this goes the wrong way, I don't know if Kerr will be back. It was, look, there's no question that Kerr right now is secure as he's ever been, but I think that it's kind of interesting how... How much was up in the air in the middle of that Houston series? And and Kerr is great. Uh, and it's funny because we did come out and say that. And then in the middle of the finals, I heard from somebody who, uh, who basically said, Kerr, there are lots of rational reasons for him to walk away, but he's more maniacally competitive than he lets on. And there's no way he's walking away, even if they win the title, which I thought was interesting and, you know, is probably something that we didn't account for as we were speculating about his future, or I was speculating about his future. But I don't know. There's more there. It wasn't. It wasn't always a sure thing with him long term. Okay, great. Because now it sounds like I've got you in a logical trap. Because you're saying the Western Conference Finals were were dicey enough. Houston pushed Golden State enough where they were almost going to have to part with their oh, head coach. Boy. Even though you've spent the last two to three months telling me that Golden State was just screwing around in that series, they would have swept uh, Houston if they had cared. They were we just screwing give... <laughs> around. <laughs> they were. That was the whole problem. Kerr had no idea how to reach Kevin Durant and that team, and it was evident throughout most of that series. Even the... I it Look, we're getting off track here, but... The first half of that Game 7, it's still shocking to me how little Golden State seemed to care. And then they were able to come out and kind of turn it on in the second half and take over. But, like, that was a Game 7, and they were still kind of going through the motions. It was amazing. Okay, so let me ask you this, though. Let's track this. Why is Kura on an ice-cold seat if you've correctly pointed out that he had issues reaching some of the main guys i think he's copped to that publicly like ha 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 i don't know what i'm going to be able to do next year like why are we so sure that those same problems have been solved completely like isn't golden state still potentially exposed to some of those same issues going into next season you know another long playoff push uh you know behind them uh motivational issues you know everyone's gunning for them uh, it's kind of the same core group of guys where you've already pushed every button. I mean, I remember that uh, remember that huddle where Steve Kerr was trying to tell Katie that Michael Jordan story, and Katie just kind of like walked by him and blew him off. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know, you think if if Kerr tries to double back with the same Michael Jordan story next year, Katie's going to be like, "Oh, please, Steve, tell me more. I'm ready to be motivated <laughs> by this." Like, are we sure he's on the ice cold seat? That's what I'm asking you. Yeah, well, the reason I have him in that category is because I think. If things don't go well this year in Golden State, it, Kerr isn't the piece that will move. I, we've been and we've been over this a, a hundred times this summer. I think that there are guys like Draymond and Durant who are more fungible as as you look to the next couple years of the Warriors than Kerr will be. And I, and 
part of that is like Kerr came back, signed that big extension, and I think that's a sign from from him and from the team that they expect this to be like a viable partnership into the next era of the Warriors and the next iteration of what this team becomes. Um, and so, th- so I think no matter what happens this year, even if it go, even if it breaks bad, let's say, uh, like Kerr isn't the one that's going to be on the move. Got you. Okay, you you promised a diversion. Let's take okay. the diversion. <laughs> All right. The one diversion I had is I was thinking about the level of security that this group of coaches enjoys, and particularly Kerr, Popovich, and Brad Stevens. And, uh, and I guess you could probably add Rick Carlisle to that group as well. But Brad Stevens is a guy, we've talked about his value uh, for the last couple years, and and I like I was thinking about his contract in Boston because he re-signed, uh, and the terms were not disclosed, but he re-signed last summer to another long-term deal with the Celtics, and I'm wondering whether you think if Brad Stevens asked for equity in the Celtics team. Would you give it to him if he if he was basically went to Danny Ainge and Wick Grossback and said, "I want to be here, but I also want a piece of what we're building. I will resign for whatever the number is, twenty million dollars plus one percent equity in the franchise or two percent equity." Would you be willing to give that to him? Oh, Andrew, I mean, I'm a I'm a sports writer. I'm not a CPA over here. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand the, the terminology that you're using. I mean, are you basically saying, look, you want to give him the equivalent of a lifetime deal if this is what his term is? He, he's demanding to sort of, uh, you know, have that extra degree of financial security. I would think about it, but I would also probably just offer him a higher salary and I wouldn't want to get that feels like that would get messy wouldn't it I mean the last time we saw a major player try to like you know get in on these handshake deals or you know like try to you know boost up uh you know their standing within an organization it was Michael Jordan with your favorite team the Washington Wizards and that did not (laughs) that did get messy I didn't didn't go so well yeah it didn't go so well so I think I probably wouldn't do that if I was Boston, but I would also bend over backwards to make sure Stevens was happy. I mean, I think I would do stuff like give him a private jet for his family. He can go yeah. back and forth to Indiana whenever he pleases. You know, I would find ways to sort of work around the edges and not do that. Why do okay. you raise this diversion? What a random question. Well, because I feel like, you know, you could make the case that there are five or six franchise players around the NBA who should be given equity in the teams that they sign with because they like LeBron's presence alone enhances the value of any team he signs with by 200 million or 300 million. I mean, it's, it's hard to deal in specific numbers, but like there's a big jump whenever he shows up and you could make a case that he deserves a piece of that appreciation. So I th- and there's a rule against doing that for players, but there's no rule against doing that for coaches, to my knowledge. And I think Pat Riley negotiated that into his deal with the Heat like 20 years ago when he ditched the Knicks in uh, one of the more infamous episodes of like the mid-90s. And looking across the league, I think Stevens is the one guy who you could say, all right, this guy actually is valuable enough 
to where we will hand over one or two percent ownership. And you know, that's the the Celtics right now are probably like valued at a billion and a half dollars, maybe two billion. So it's a significant chunk of of money. It'd be like twenty million dollars. Um and I would give it to him if I were the Celtics, but I don't know I don't know if I'm overvaluing Stevens in that context. I don't know if you're overvaluing it, but it is making me want to vomit. I mean, first of all, you open up and you say you're in Massachusetts. Second of all, you want us to give a percentage of the organization to Brad Stevens. We've talked about how you've been sucked into the Celtics vortex and it's not a good look and you're really committing wizards treason right now. I mean, what else are we going to do? Are we going to put a picture of his face? at center court should we just paint it right into the hardwood maybe lucky the leprechaun we could just turn that into a tribute to brad stevens and and force him to wear a brad stevens halloween mask i mean how far are we going to pray at the altar of brad stevens all to satisfy i'm saying is that your desire to show stevens, him respect if i were brad stevens's agent that's what i would be pushing for and i believe his wife is a lawyer who negotiates on his behalf so i'm not saying i'm better than his wife but i hope that they are getting a little ownership stake in there uh because he's he's got the credibility to do it popovich is another guy who you know i'm sure probably does own some part of the spurs at this point uh, but it's an interesting thing to think about and that it's the sort of thing that like all the coach negotiations kind of happen in secrecy. Like, we don't know what Brad Stevens is being paid exactly. We don't really know what Popovich's compensation is like. And so it was just one element of this conversation that I, that I thought about uh, as I was going through Wikipedia this afternoon. But we can move on. Well, I would like to do this. What would be, let's just flip this on its head. Who would be the worst coach to give an equity share to if you were an organization (laughs) like what would be the best way uh to burn your money i mean what are you thinking well it's funny because i as i was thinking through all this i you know you should you can make a good case that a number of players are worth like one or two percent ownership stakes but then i i quickly thought okay so that would be like a super max type deal and then my mind immediately jumped to John Wall, and the only way that you could make the current John Wall contract more upsetting is if John Wall was literally a part owner of the Washington Wizards after this <laughs> summer. So maybe it's for the best that we don't do this with all the players. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, really, like every coach outside of Popovich, Kerr, Brad Stevens... And I, I don't know. I mean, I don't really put Spolstra and Carlisle and Snyder on the same level as those guys. Um, but any other coach getting an ownership stake would probably be bad news. Yeah, Scott Brooks would actually be a great candidate for just a, a, a way to burn money by giving him an equity stake. Well, how about this negotiation? Like the Grizzlies, you know, they're sitting there and they're like, hey, JB Bickerstaff, uh, we're actually going to hire you as our as our new full-time head coach. And JB's like looking around the room like, wait, am I being pranked? Like I was the interim. I'm always supposed to be the interim. I'm not supposed to get hired full-time. And then the owner comes back and like, and on top of that, we're going to give you an equity stake. And he, he his head would explode if, if that happened in that moment. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned Scott Brooks because that's another one that I was thinking about. Like, I go, going back to the summer where it was the summer of 2016 where the Wizards signed Scott Brooks, I still have no idea 
who they were negotiating against, but Scott Brooks's agent, who is Warren Legary, who's also a central figure in Vegas Summer League, that guy deserves a raise. He did an amazing job with the Scott Brooks contract. And uh, yeah, and that's a good segue into the rest of the categories we have here because J.B. Bickerstaff is also in the mix as well. Um, so the next category I have is recently signed coaches. That is Brett Brown, who recently signed a significant extension in Philly. He probably would have been on the hot seat had we done this, done this uh, last summer. But And then we also have Lloyd Pierce, James Borrego, Steve Clifford, Dwayne Casey, Igor Kokoskov, Nick Nurse, Mike Budenholzer, David Fisdale, and your guy, J.B. Bickerstaff, who... Looking back at the Grizzlies' tanking efforts, do you think it was just understood that he was going to tank and his reward would be getting a long-term deal this summer? Is that how that worked? Maybe, but what was his leverage? You know, I, I think I it know. was one of those situations where, like, that situation is so bleak right now that they were going to do a coaching search and they realized that, like, they were really going to have to settle pretty hard. And they probably just came to the conclusion they couldn't get somebody better than Bickerstaff because at least he had familiarity with the players and you know, he'd had some level of head coaching experience. So rather than taking a shot on some assistant that you know nobody's ever heard of or you know a retread a guy who you know bombed out somewhere else, they just sort of went with the known quantity. Um, you know, I hear what you're saying in terms of like, okay, this is like the payback for you know just six months of misery. But at the same time, if you're an organization, you can't think like that, right? Like they have lots of priorities. Yeah, they're trying to, it's, you're trying it's, to get through this time period. You're trying to grow your your new rookie and Jaron Jackson Jr. You know, you're potentially trying to get some of these guys in position where you can trade them if things don't go well. Like you have a lot of organizational priorities. And, you know, just saying like, hey, man, I know the next three months are going to suck, but don't worry. There's like, a, you know, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. That's not how good business is done. Yeah, and I, I'm not advocating or endorsing uh, that approach. It just that's the only plausible explanation I have for why they committed to JB Bickerstaff going forward. Um, because he and it's not really. I guess it is a shot at him. He's just never been that impressive. Um, and I I would have wanted to take things in a different direction if I were them. But yeah. Among that group, we can safely say that none of those guys are getting fired in the next year, correct? I would think so, but that's always one of my favorite situations where someone just gets fired in their first year out of nowhere because clearly they just made like the wrong hire completely. And there's so many <laughs> bad teams on this list where I would assume that that's not going to happen, especially guys who recently just got hired like you know, Coach Bud or Dwayne Casey, I mean, you know, Fizdale in New York. Like, I think those guys are basically untouchable in year one. But it will be funny if, uh, you know, someone that kind of pops out of the blue and just gets, uh, you know, knocked off. I mean, I'm thinking about, like, the Mike Dunlap era in Charlotte, you know? Like, oh, yeah, he's a new coach. He's completely fine. Like, wait a minute. Like, no, no one has any not. idea who he is, what he's doing. It's a complete mess, and he's just gone real quick. So, I would just caution, don't assume 100% retention from this group. That's all I'm going to say. Yes, and that's part of what makes this fun, is there are definitely going to be a couple curveballs uh, all over this list. Um, but moving on to the next category I had, which is not untouchable, but the seat is not hot. So I have five names. Kenny Atkinson in Brooklyn, Ty Lu in Cleveland, Dave Yeager, Nate McMillan, 
and Mike D'Antoni. Um, and D'Antoni, you could argue that he should be untouchable at this point, but there are various scenarios where I could see him getting fired at the end of this season. Um, and same with McMillan. McMillan was great last year, but like if the Pacers miss the playoffs entirely, you know, there, there are a couple like dark timelines where things could were like a change could be necessary um but those those guys i think are probably safe regardless i think they're both safe regardless i would actually move them out of this category i think with dan tony he's really lucky that the rockets didn't trade for carmelo on his big salary number and instead got him on the minimum (laughs) like i think that's the kind of thing where like it saves him from a leverage standpoint because if they get into a fight or I guess I should say when they get into a fight over Melo's role or his lack of defense or not playing him in the fourth quarter or whatever else, D'Antoni's going to win that fight this year. So I see him you know, in place. I think they've got a really stable organization there. All things considered, they like where they're at. He's got the backing of uh, management uh, yeah. and the new ownership group. I think he's okay. As far as McMillan, I mean, him and Kevin Pritchard are you know fast friends, best buddies. They go back a ways. I think it would take something like Oladipo just deciding he hates McMillan's guts, which (laughs) is is very hard to foresee uh, for there to be a change. I think they're playing with so much house money after last year that he would still be able to survive a disappointing year this time around uh, and be given another shot. I I agree with you on both counts. And then Kenny Atkinson and Dave Yeager, the expectations are so low that it's hard to imagine like the Nets or the Kings um, getting really intense at the end of the year and saying we need to be well, better. Can I draw a distinction there? Uh, because I actually think Atkinson, I mean, nobody cares. Like the, the Nets are technically in the NBA, but not really. Yeah. In terms of the Kings, though, they think they're going to be a lot better than they are every season, right? That's a standard thing from Vivek is that, hey, this is the year we made all these moves. We're going to do it. Um, Divorce from reality is the status quo in Sacramento. And there's multiple times during every regular season where reality does finally hit for them. And at some point, you just get frustrated and want to fire somebody. He doesn't really have any, you know, high priced players that he can trade because the roster's, you know, pretty much gutted. Um, so I could see there being a scenario where Jaeger is like gets fired, sort of like Michael Malone did, where everybody looks around and like, why did they fire this guy? That's not going to change anything, and it doesn't change anything. I yeah. could see that scenario just because of Vivek's track record. The other guy I want to push you on a little bit, maybe Ty Lue. Like I'm not saying he's on the hot seat, but you know Dan Gilbert, you know like Vivek level delusions about his own you know ability as an yep. owner. Uh, he just commits a ton of money to Kevin Love. You know, he's got the the hyped, you know, first round lottery pick point guard who he's going to be expecting huge things from. And then he's got a roster of a whole bunch of players where you might think they're good, but they're not good, especially they're not good anymore, right? <laughs> right. So there could be a scenario where Gilbert's like, we're going to make the playoffs and they don't even get close. And then he's looking around for someone to blame. Could you see that? I could, and I actually just pulled up the Cavs roster here. It's going to be a sobering year <laughs> in Cleveland because really, like, all of these guys looked half decent with LeBron there. But now when you're re- when you're rolling out like J.R. Smith, Tristan Thompson has not been the same player for the last year and a half or so. I mean, Kyle Korver 
has got to be close to age 40 at this point. Jordan Clarkson. Kevin Love is still good. And I think they're going to get a good year out of Kevin Love. But, like, George Hill, it's going to be tough. Um, And I definitely hear what you're saying in terms of Ty Lue's lack of security. I just think that we're more likely to see a scenario where Ty Lue just walks away on his own accord than Dan Gilbert firing Ty Lue. Because at the... At this point, like, I don't know who you get to come to Cleveland after you fire someone like Lou. Um, and, and that may play into it as well. Ty Lou's going to be like angling to get included in the trade package with Kevin Love. <laughs> He's just like, hey, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> like, move me somewhere better. This will be great. Uh, uh, all right. L- let me hear your next group. This is good. Okay. The next category I had is beware of malfunctioning seat warmers. And. This is because my old car, a Volkswagen Jetta, had a defect where anytime you try to turn on the seat warmer, the seats immediately became like piping hot and as soon as and you even if you turned off the seat warmer, like the rest of the trip your seat was just uncomfortably hot to the point where people just wanted to like get out of the car and move to the back seat. And so This category uh, denotes coaches whose seat is not currently warm, but could become very, very hot if things go bad. And I have three names for you. Number one is Scott Brooks. And if the Wizards miss the playoffs this year, just as John Wall's Supermax is kicking in and Brad Beal is an all-star and like... If it goes very badly, there's going to be no one to blame in D.C. but Scott Brooks because all those other guys are locked in on long-term deals. So he's in this one. Billy Donovan and Alvin Gentry are are two uh, representatives from the Western Conference. And Gentry is one where I, I think he did a great job with the Pelicans last season and did a great job with basically two iterations of the Pelicans roster. But um, again, like if they if they miss the playoffs this year, I don't know who else they can move um, and and what else they can change except to change the coach. And then Billy Donovan, I don't know. We're three or four years into this, and I still have no idea whether he's actually a good coach. So, what do you think of those three? I hear you. I mean, I think the one that maybe makes me pause a little bit is Gentry. I believe he got uh, a, an extension. I'm not sure if it was a super long extension, but I'm pretty sure he signed that back in June. Um, okay. Now, is that complete job security? You know, I, I wouldn't say that. But I do think like their goals as an organization are sort of relevance and like, you know, not being decrepit and like good enough that they can talk themselves into like denying the fact that Anthony Davis is going to want to leave in a few years. So I'm not sure I really see the ownership pressure on Gentry with like the playoff mandate where like if they finished ninth and had, you know, uh, a reasonably good season, like say they had the same year that Denver had last year, right? We're like, Oh, we were so close. We just barely missed it. Like I don't see their ownership group being like, oh, you're such a disgrace. This organization's so great. We're like the Saints. You know, we're, you know, like some like elitist attitude. I think they just talked themselves into keeping Gentry. Um, yeah. In terms of Donovan, I think that's fair. I mean, I, he's still looking to kind of define who he is outside of Russell Westbrook's shadow as a coach. 
I'm not sure he's ever going to be able to do that, frankly. I think he is just in that uh, job as the enabler in chief. I think that's you know essentially what he's being asked to do. And yeah. so far, it's worked out to a, a reasonable degree of success. And uh, you know, if if they were to miss the playoffs, though, I think you know that would be a scenario where like, okay, the playoff mandate you know does go into effect. Uh, right. Who was the other name you mentioned? Scott Brooks. Oh yeah, I think there's a pretty good chance he's not back next year, one way or the other. I just trust the Dwight Howard curse. I mean, I to me, there's such a track record of that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> that like you know, if he defies those odds, he should win Coach of the Year. Let's put it that way. Which I believe you were the one who highlighted that because that's now become a talking point with Dwight Howard. And it started with a Golver stat, like the the day he signed with the Wizards. Um, But it's true that Dwight has gotten like six coaches fired in the last six years. Uh, Yeah, and Billy Donovan is, to be clear, someone who I really like and he seems like a good guy. And I would love to read like a Billy Donovan tell-all from the last couple years in Oklahoma City and even going back to like some of the Florida teams he coached were pretty fascinating. Um, like college Udonis Haslam, Mike Miller, Teddy Dupay, like Billy Donovan has some stories. I, I just think that as a coach, he's very average. And, uh, and if things don't go well for OKC, he's going to be the easy fall guy for them. Although he does seem to have a good relationship with Sam Presti, which will probably work in his favor. Um, all right, so we've got six more coaches here. I will read them all at once, and we can see whatever you want to talk about. The lukewarm seats across the league are Doc Rivers, Tom Thibodeau, and Luke Walton. And Luke Walton, I think the easy hot take would be to say, oh, whoever's coaching LeBron's team has obviously got the hottest seat in the league. But like, I think similar to Presti, like, Luke Walton seems to have a pretty good relationship with Jeannie Buss and those guys. And uh, and I think that, well, we can get into it in a minute. But then the hottest three seats in the league are Mike Malone in Denver, Terry Stotts in Portland, and Fred Hoiberg, who in my mind, and this is through no fault of his own and is more related to like the unrealistic expectations in Chicago. In my mind, Hoiberg's like kind of already half fired at this point but what do you think of those six I, i'm now i'm thinking about this idea of giving coaches equity and i'm just praying that fred hoiberg got some equity given what he's had to deal with <laughs> he's been totally <laughs> screwed the, year after year i mean year after year they found new ways to mess with him and then this year i mean levine on the big number and jabari parker on the big number i mean boy oh boy that would be really hard to swallow for the mayor um i think why do you have Terry Stotts in this hottest of hot seats category? I feel like if there was any question about his future, he would have been fired after the second straight sweep in the first round of the playoffs, right? And I think a lot of the Blazers fan angst is now just completely on uh, Neil O'Shea, O'Shea because you yeah. look at, you know, their roster from like four through 15 is just completely disastrous. And <laughs> I think bad. that that momentum has been building for a while you know, Lillard basically swears by stats, um, and you know, they've overachieved, at least during the regular season, a couple times under him. Why do you see him as, as being on that hottest of hot seats? Well, I think part of that overachieving then comes with sort of the curse of unrealistic expectations as you head into the next season. 
And you look at that Portland roster, and we, we've been over this earlier in the summer. Like, they just weren't able to really improve anywhere. And, uh, like, if they were the seventh seed, I think that would be a, a positive outcome for them, but maybe not something that, like, Paul Allen is very impressed by. And if they're the seventh seed and go down in four or five games in the first round, like, he may be looking to clean house with everybody. Um, and I think Stotts would be included in that although if you're if what you're saying is that Paul Allen will look at this and say all right so Neil O'Shea has been the problem I'm gonna fire him and I'm going to keep Stotts as like the the rock that we can build the next generation around that makes sense to me but it's just that's smarter and more rational than a lot of owners tend to be no doubt. And like Vegas's line for the Blazers was like 41 and a half. I guarantee you that's not where Paul Allen's line is. You know, right. like when you get that, when you get that third seed and then you get embarrassed in the playoffs and you're angry and you're thinking like, Hey, come on, like we got to be better than last season. Um, you're not expecting that, you know, a quiet off season, you know, sends you tumbling out of the playoff picture. So I could see a big shakeup if they miss the playoffs. I feel um, like he's sort of on like double secret probation at this point. Like they, they definitely had conversations about whether to bring him back after that first round loss. And again, not all of that is fair because he did an awesome job getting them to 51 or 52 wins in the third seed in the West. Like that's a big win. Uh, but it's just, he's sort of right now is where Dwayne Casey was at this time last year. Yeah, that's well said. I think he probably makes it to next year if I had to bet myself. Um, and if, if there was one to go, I would guess O'Shea would go before Stotts, but my personal opinion, and, and Paul Allen's been very hard to read because when I was covering Paul Allen back in my day, Andrew, you know, he was firing <laughs> GMs every six months. He wasn't letting them strike out for four straight summers and just still letting them keep their jobs. So, uh, you know, he has, uh, always been kind of an odd duck, a weird guy to read. And he does seem like maybe he's not quite as invested in like night to night winning as he was maybe, uh, you know, during his younger days. Um, why do you not have Thibodeau in this hottest of hot seat category, given all of the, you know, talk about personality and locker room stuff and, you know, the potential that, you know, if Jimmy leaves, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't that reflect on, you know, Thibodeau in terms of making that move for him at some point, is it just because you think the owner is, kind of cheap and not willing to to pay him yes. to go away or or why that's exactly why is it, i think there's going to be some sort of some institutional indifference um and i just i mean basically the relationship with carl towns would have to deteriorate to the point of a trade request um for Thibodeau to really be on the like super hot seat. I think they've committed so much money to him that it's hard to imagine him getting fired outright unless things go really bad. Although uh, most of my reluctance to put him in that category is just bad teams like the T-Wolves have traditionally been okay being like moderately relevant. I mean, they were the eighth seed this past year. If, if they, are the seventh seed this year or the sixth seed like th- that's still a win and more success than the wolves have had in a- at any other point since uh garnett left and so i think that's part of what will keep him in minnesota although i we've heard from a lot of wolves fans who want him gone now and so I, you could sell me on him being on the hottest seat outside of hoiberg 
Yeah, I actually think, even though you called it a hot take earlier, I think Luke Walton, I'm not sure if the hot seat is the right thing to describe his situation, because I do think he's got, you know, very strong ties with, you know, management. And I think he's going to be able to, you know, do a good job of communicating and being straightforward with LeBron. Like, I think he's going to be able to, you know, handle those relationships. And that's the most important part of that job for this season. But I do think he has by far the toughest job of any coach in the league, and just so many different things could go wrong. I don't know if you saw you know, last couple of days the Raptors hired, you know, Kawhi Leonard's high school buddy to be an assistant coach, and like yeah. I was looking at the Lakers roster, thinking that they might need to have like fifteen individual one-on-one assistant coaches, <laughs> like one for every player on the roster. Like you get a Rondo whisperer, you get a Lonzo whisperer. Uh, you know, you get somebody to deal with Lance Stevenson blowing his ear to make sure you kind of like reset his uh, mental framework every once in a while. You get a babysitter for Michael Beasley. Like you would, honestly, if you could have like unlimited number of assistant coaches with the Lakers, you would probably hire like 12 to 15 coaches to kind of like keep these guys all in order. And there's so many conflicting interests between the young guys who need to develop and the veterans who are going to expect certain things, uh, trying to find the uh, right lineup combinations around LeBron figuring out how to deploy LeBron positionally, you know, to get the most out of him without taxing him too much. And then, of course, you're facing massive playoff expectations. You have to take a big step forward. I mean, I just think that's a really, really, really tough job. I think, you know, Luke Walton's actually got the right personality to kind of handle all these things and take it in stride. Um, But at the same time, I think he's going to be losing a lot of hair this year. You know, it's going to be one of those situations where it's like with Obama, you know, the pictures from like 2008 compared to 2016. And he gained like 40 years in age. Uh, Luke Walton, like 2018 versus 2019, Luke Walton's going to age about 15 to 20 years. Well, it's going to be a fascinating experiment because Luke Walton has the look of the most easygoing human on earth. And so it is certainly going to be put to the test here. He's been living in Manhattan Beach for like 20 years, just living the dream. And uh, it will get interesting the reason I don't put him in the hot, hot, hot seat category that I came up with is I think that LeBron is so aware of what's said about him at all times. And he, I think that he doesn't want to be given the label of coach killer. Um, and I think that he has probably heard a number of people saying, he can't make it work with Luke Walton. Luke Walton's days are numbered, et cetera, et cetera. And so I would imagine that he's coming into this year with the goal of at least giving the appearance of Luke Walton like, like has real authority and is a real coach, and I'm not just going to be like the puppet master. Um, that may not be something LeBron cares about, but it's it's the one thing that like critics use to kind of ding his legacy a little bit or ding his reputation and uh lebron cares about all every kind of criticism that he's been given like lebron pays attention and so that is another factor that i think will probably work in in luke walton's favor no that's a great point i mean all big time stars get hit with that potential coach killer shade and most of them you know are able to kind of work through it i think for lebron this could be another situation where he zigs and everybody expected he was going to zag, right? Like everyone thought there was going to be a big show when he announces his free agency. You know, instead he puts it out by kind of like a a one sentence press release. Everyone expects him to kind of, you know, really push his coach hard. Uh, And instead he, you know, he plays nice. He becomes Luke Walton's number one public defender. And, you know, the 
secondary effect of, of him doing that, if he does follow the prescription you're laying out there, would be that it just makes David Blatt look worse. And it makes David Blatt look like the isolated <laughs> case yeah. where like he basically had to be killed as the coach because it just was not working at all. And it was his fault. If LeBron can get along with Lou, if he can get along with Spolstra fairly well, yeah. uh, and, and now he can get along with Walton, that winds up putting more of the onus on that breakdown in Cleveland on Blatt rather than LeBron. So, um, you know, I can see where you're coming from. You know, again, it's also, can you find a coach better suited to managing all of these personalities and interests than Luke Walton. Like I don't really see one out there right now. And yeah. so th- that does kind of save him a little bit too, right? It's like you already had a lot of big name coaches move uh, this past summer, whether it was Casey or, or Budenholzer or, uh, you know, others as well. Uh, is there an obvious, like, here's the guy who's going to replace Luke. I don't see that guy out there. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> That also casts some doubt on the decisions made in free agency if neither one of us can think of a coach on the face of the planet that would be like in a good position to deal with some of these Lakers players. Um, but uh, I but just, yeah. I just, I hope Luke's got the Headspace app, and I hope he gets really deep <laughs> into it this year. You might have to do like four hour sessions every morning. It's going to be interesting. Uh, the, the last two, Mike Malone, I think, is pretty self-explanatory, where he's another guy who's coming in on, like, double-secret probation. The players seem to really like Mike Malone, and it, but there's just there's pressure on this Nuggets team to go finally win and, like, do it. And, uh, and if that doesn't happen, if you look up in mid-January and they're in 10th place or 11th place, I think it's pretty easy to see where the front office will go with Malone. Doc Rivers is one who he probably should have been in like the Ty Lue category of a guy who might just leave on his own accord. I don't really see the Clippers firing him, um, but he's really hard to read because I, I would have thought that he would have been fired or left like early last year. And then he stuck around and was one of the best coaches in the league the last couple months of the season. So I don't have any idea where that's going over the next year or so. Yeah, I think that's touch and go. You know, if, if they turn into another scrappy team like last year, overachieve a little bit, give their fans a reason to show up, then, you know, he probably decides he wants to stay. I mean, to me, he is probably one of those guys who's got his eye, you know, looking elsewhere, like waiting for some premier jobs to open up. And I think most of the contender type positions haven't really changed. And so, you know, he, there's not a better opportunity out there for him uh, than the Clippers. I think if, you know, they wind up, you know, showing the effects of so much roster turnover here in the last two years, and they easily could. I mean, I think the Clippers are, you know, one of those teams that could easily be a lot worse than we expect. Um, You know, that could be a situation where it just makes sense for them to bring in a new voice as well, because he's been there for uh, an awful long time. Going back real quick to Mike Malone, um, you know, I've been digging in a lot to the numbers. The numbers really, really like the Nuggets, you know, coming into this season, uh, even more than usual. Uh-huh. Um, they're kind of one of those teams that sometimes it doesn't quite work out as well in practice as you expect in theory. But like the advanced numbers love Jokic, obviously. The pairing with Jokic and Millsap last year was a big time uh, net positive. Uh, the lineup with Will Barton at the starting three and, you know, their two guards plus those two bigs I just mentioned performed very well in very limited minutes last year and you can expect growth from both Murray and Harris you know given their age right so a lot of the projection systems are very high on the Nuggets I I'm not sure that internally their expectations are as high even maybe as the projections are but 
to me, it could be one of those situations where we we think coming into the season, Malone's going to be a hot seat guy, and if they do deliver on sort of what the you know projections expect from them, he could wind up getting into that coach of the year conversation because people look around and say, well, he doesn't have a true star unless you count Jokic, which we probably should count him, but most people don't. Uh, and here's this team that's you know fighting for home court advantage in the West. I could see that being how Denver seasons play out. I guess long story short. I'm kind of with the advanced numbers. I think that they're going to be good enough this year to keep Malone off the hot seat. Okay, but you would agree that right now he's one of, of the course. three or five that like really has to win. Well, look, if he was playing in a real market that actually cared about NBA basketball, I mean, no disrespect to Nuggets fans. I realize that's disrespectful, but you know, come on, you guys know it's true. If he was playing, you know, or if he was yeah. coaching in, you know, the New York or the Chicago or LA or. Uh, wherever else missing the playoffs last year would have gotten him fired you know okay. it just period. i agree yeah well and by the way no disrespect to denver because the the real nuggets fans that we hear from are very real basketball fans but i in dc we have a small community of people who actually care about the wizards and then almost everybody doesn't really give a shit and so that's the way denver is that's the way a lot of markets are it's no disrespect um and i really yeah, like no, if the if the entire sports media market in denver was keyed around the nuggets like it is in some other markets he would have had to go because the pressure for you know getting down to the last game of the season and not getting it done plus the pressure of paying all that money for Millsap. Uh, that just would have sort of accumulated. But like even among their ownership group, I mean, they're not the number one team that the owner even cares about. I mean, they're over there, you know, throwing their money around at Arsenal and, and doing all this other stuff too. So, uh, you know, they're, yeah, you know, it's just, it's tough. You're not the number one uh, dog in your city. You're not the number one dog among your uh, your owner's portfolio of sports franchises. So, you know, for Michael Malone, that's great. You get a second chance or a third chance or whatever chance he's up to right now. Well, and I really like Michael Malone, um, and this is our last note on coaches, but it's a couple years ago when he had Nurkic in camp, I believe that he was teaching himself Bosnian using uh, Rosetta Stone, and he was learning the, the language to be able to curse at Nurkic in, or at least... I guess understand the curse words in in Bosnian, and I think he also learned Serbian to understand a little bit of what Jokic was saying. And uh, look, anybody who does that is cool with me. He seems like a good guy in interviews, so uh, I hope he does well this year. But yeah, I think I think Nurkic has a slightly different perspective on how their relationship works. Out. <laughs> Probably. I mean, have, well, that was I mean, back Nurkic, in the good days. <laughs> yeah, Nurkic might have been teaching himself different languages to like stay one head of the curve. Like he's swearing out Malone in Chinese, or, or you know, cursing out his lack of playing time in uh, in uh, you know some Thai dialect. But look, let's uh, let's hop to the next category. Or is that all the categories? That's all the, the categories. We did the full thirty coaches. Uh, great August podcast. Do you want to do a couple more questions? Uh, to wrap things up bring it okay so first we have kane who says what team would you guys call hardest to predict next season i think the pelicans have an interesting case sure anthony davis is a superstar but are we counting on anyone around him for sure drew holiday is great at times and similar things can be said for nikola miritich and julius randall it could go great but it could also go very wrong and Ben, I agree with this wholeheartedly. I'm curious for your read on the Pelicans as we sit here in mid-August. 
well, another pairing that worked just great together. I mentioned the Millsap Jokic pairing. The Miritich Davis pairing was phenomenal down the stretch. Those two guys, you know, really, uh, you know, just made for a great uh, front court tandem. And I think Randall, uh, you know, potentially brings a new element into the mix as well. Uh, Miritich and Davis actually played together, played more effectively together than Cousins and Davis did. If you look at the on-off numbers, which that might be surprising to some people, but you know, it, it also makes some level of sense given that Miritich doesn't need the ball, that he doesn't commit as many turnovers, that he can space the court, uh, that he plays hard and, and rebounds well and does some of the little things. Uh, so I think you know, it all basically comes down to Holiday, and that's why they're going to be in this category every single year, right? Like, if Holiday gives you a really good season and plays like a star and, uh, you know, plays like a guy who's a top 30 player like he did during the playoffs, they should be awesome. Uh, That should be enough to kind of carry them through in the playoffs. If he doesn't or if he misses time um, or something else goes sideways, then they're going to be a very, very different team, regardless of how well Davis plays or regardless of how well those front court pieces fit. So, uh, that's not all Holiday's fault, by the way. It's because of their other personnel. It just turns over so quickly in that backcourt. I mean, they're just constantly su- shuffling through, you know, reserve guards and you know guys who are just sort of on the fringes of the NBA and not, uh, you know, being major contributors. It puts a lot of pressure on Holiday to basically you know play as well as he did down the stretch of last season uh, to keep them afloat. Yeah, uh, and that's my number one worry with them is I just don't really understand why you like because they've spent a couple years trying to get the formula right with Drew Holiday and watching him be unleashed down the stretch last season and obviously in the playoffs playing next to Rondo and playing kind of more of a two-guard role I don't understand why they would turn around from there and say we're going to go replace Rondo with a cheaper version of him who has all the same weaknesses but, like, none of the strengths in Alfred Payton. And, I, like, I wouldn't have rocked the boat. I, I would have I brought back Rondo with the money that they had earmarked for Boogie. And instead they got kind of a poor man's Rondo and a poor man's Boogie in Julius Randle. So to me, those are red flags. Uh, having said that, thinking through how next season is going to play out and various MVP candidates. I mean, like you could make a good case that Anthony Davis is the best player on the planet, like right now. And, uh, and certainly through the first couple weeks of the playoffs last year, he looked that way. And so tone it down. Come on. No, no, he's look, he was incredible. He was incredible. And you, so there's a chance that he just plays out of this world and they win 54 games or 55 games and the Pelicans are fine. Um, but there's enough red flags down there where I kind of expect them to regress. And if I were picking a, a team of like likely playoff team, or I mean, if, if I were looking at a group of likely playoff teams in the West and looking for the one outlier who could fall out out of nowhere, it would probably be New Orleans. Look, you can very easily talk me into Anthony Davis as an MVP candidate, but don't come on here and tell me he's a better <laughs> basketball player than LeBron James and Kevin Durant and your guy 30, Steph Curry. Come well, on, Well, look, this is dangerous because you've been, like, doing this shadow boxing with Rob Mahoney talking about the best players in the world for the last three weeks. So I'm not as passionate as you are here. I'm just saying that he has... The ceiling of Anthony Davis is as high as anyone in the league, and the best Anthony Davis game is just as good as the best LeBron game right now. That That's my take. 
Um, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I, I, I hate to do this because it's like we're transferring the knock from Chris Paul uh, straight to Anthony Davis. But let's see Anthony make a conference finals and play his best game on the you know NBA's highest level before we start granting him thrones that belong to guys like LeBron. <laughs> that's Katie, fair. That's fair. I'm not Curry. even sure I agree with all of this, but it's a it's a conversation, okay? Uh, uh, I think I think the conversation that you're trying to get at is he could easily be the MVP this season, right? Like if you're going to bet against someone besides LeBron to win the MVP, to me. It's probably going to be AD or Giannis, right? Well, like they're kind of next in line. I agree, and I also think about it like this: if you put Anthony Davis on that Lakers team with those young Lakers players around him, whether it's Ingram, I, I still not a huge Lonzo Ball guy, but like if you gave him some of those pieces, I think that he could take that team fairly far and get them right around 50 wins. And uh, we just haven't seen him in a great basketball situation except for like the final three or four months of last year's Pelican season. And when he had that team around him, like they were great. And they, they were like, had they not run into the Warriors, they might've been able to push their way to the conference finals. Um, So it just, with the context with Anthony Davis makes it hard to gauge exactly how great he is because everyone else who's on his level is surrounded by other superstars and he's never had anything close. I mean, it's amazing to me how you find new ways to diss the Rockets left and right. They were not going to get through the Rockets <laughs> in the Western <laughs> Conference playoffs. Come on, Andrew. No, but here, I, I think the Pelicans were betting this summer to answer your question about like Rondo versus Alfred Payton. I think that's a fantastic question to ask about this roster. The Pelicans are banking on the fact that their success down the stretch was finding the right pace and style to, to put Davis in a position to succeed and then just letting him feast night after night and banking that they can continue playing that way next season with or without Rondo because the most important aspects of it were pace uh, and you know just beating teams up and down the court, keeping the ball moving, um, and you're just basically not stopping, just playing this breakneck style. All the guys that they've got, whether it's Miritich and now uh, you know, Julius Randle are going to fit that style. I mean, they should anyways. And so they're, they're basically hoping that Rondo was getting too much share of the credit for last year's success. And that, you know, just kind of replacing him with a guy who all he has to do is run the ball up the court in Peyton and never shoot and never do anything else. And then, you know, throw lobs to Davis and let him go up and finish all these incredible, you know, slam dunks and, and putbacks around the rim. Uh, they're banking that that's going to be, you know, fairly, uh, you know, simple task for a guy like Peyton to fill in. We'll see. I mean, I think it's a reasonable bet to be making because there was no doubt to me that Davis was driving that, you know, frenetic push down the stretch. And and there was also no question to me that they found the right way to utilize him finally after like five or six years for searching for it. And so, uh, you know, I, like I said earlier, I think Gentry is going to be able to survive as a coach. I think the Pelicans, if I had to bet on it, they will make the playoffs next season. Uh, but you know, in terms of like building on last year's success, I don't really see that. I, I think uh, they're going to be a good team, but not a great team. Yeah. Well, uh, and what I would say is they're scary to bet against, but they're scary to bet on. So I, I agree with <laughs> yeah. the initial Kane question. They are very difficult to predict. And the other teams I would put in there, like the Raptors, the Lakers are the scariest team to bet on or against in the entire league. And then I don't know. I can't really think of other like major wild cards going into next season, but those are the big three for me. 
Yeah, I think Timberwolves have got to be in that mix just because they're so top-heavy and because of some of the off-season stuff we've talked about and also because of the way they use their minutes. And, you know, if Tibbs is just not going to bend on that, I I worry that something will have to give. And then the other one I I mentioned briefly earlier would be the Nuggets. I think that they have a higher ceiling than most people realize, um, but that is one of those franchises that just finds a way to disappoint no matter, like, what their bar is. You know, it seems like they always fall, like, just short of it. So... Um, if they wind up doing that again, um, you know, that would be sort of, you know, true to form. I don't think it's going to happen. I think they're going to have a, a nice breakthrough year this year, but yeah. they are, you know, again, difficult to bank on similar to what you're saying about the Pelicans. Like you don't really want to wager on the nuggets because the whole season, you're not enjoying it. You're just kind of like sitting there sweating with your eyes closed, like just hoping for it to be over. Yeah. Well, I, that's another thing that's been funny with the basketball internet in these dead months. It's like, Somehow we always end up shouting at each other about Nikola Jokic. And my theory on it is that the only people who are still down to argue about the NBA in in like the middle of August are the same people who feel very passionately about Nikola Jokic. And like the only, his appreciators are like the true, true diehards who are just ready to stand out while everyone else is at the beach. And so that's why we end up here every single summer. No, it's a great point. I mean, the LeBron versus Mike conversation carries us for all of June and July, but it (laughs) tends to to hit a wall about the second week of August. And then everyone's left to just sort of look for the scraps on the table. Yeah. Couple more questions. Zach says, why is no one talking about the Bucks this summer? And then Ethan says, LeBron is entering the final stage of his career. His focus is partially turning to non-basketball things. The NBA needs a new king. But who could take the crown that LeBron has held for over a decade and do it justice? Kevin Durant, the snake prince? Anthony Davis, the brow of the South. I would have taken a shot at Anthony Davis's health there if I were him and making this case because Ethan continues on and says, the choice is easy because it is destiny. Giannis Antetokounmpo will fulfill his father's name. Antetokounmpo means literally the king from across the seas. What more needs to be said? The prophecy will be realized Giannis and the Bucks are going to the NBA Finals this year. The media needs to stop sleeping. What do you say, Ben? I, I'm not all the way there. I didn't know that that's what his name means. And by the way, his the pronunciation for Antetokounmpo has changed every single year he's been in the NBA. I think it. I had always thought it was Antetokounmpo, but I'm hearing more people pronounce the T's these days. Either way, we love Giannis. Where are you on Bucks hype? I mean, it was written by Ethan. Wow. What a <laughs> prophecy, you know, from the basketball gods direct into our email box. I really appreciated that. Um, I do think people are sleeping on the Bucks. I think they've got some untapped upside. You know, when I was doing my over under column pick, I, I said take the Bucks over. Uh, for actually similar reasons that I suggested it last year, that eventually MVP caliber players just break through and will kind of, you know, so-so rosters to 50 wins. It didn't happen last year. We went through every twist and turn of that, whether it was the coaching uh, decisions, you know, the the replacement, the trade of Eric Bledsoe, it just didn't happen. But I do think 
Um, the door is wide open for him to be not only in the MVP conversation, but to kind of get his team into that top four. I think, you know, Coach Bud clearly is already instilling what he wants to do on offense with the veteran additions they made, whether it's Ilya Sover uh, or Lopez. Uh, I think they've got the ability to show different looks now. They can go like real offense happy if they want to. They can put in some more defensive specialists when they need to. Um, I just still don't love the roster, but of course we love Giannis. And I do think in all the hype about Philly and Boston and even, you know, sort of like the question type hype around Toronto with Kawhi, uh, you know, to me, that next group after those guys, you know, Milwaukee is right near the front of that group, you know, and if they were the four seed or if they even snuck up into a three seed because someone had a bad year, uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all. And, you know, this is the year they need to win a playoff series, though. I mean, we've talked about like their ticking clock in terms of building around Giannis and making the right kind of, you know, positive momentum before his potential free agency. Like they need to win a playoff series this year. Now's the time to do it. Yeah, uh, I agree with everything you said. And I think with Giannis, what I would say is there's no one in the East who is more terrifying to watch your team play against. So watching like Markeith Morris try to guard Giannis is the is the worst feeling in the world when the, when the Wizards are playing any team from the Eastern Conference and I'm sure that's repeated across the conference and he's just like that incredible and that that impossible to stop and so I think weaponizing some of the pieces around him and getting him in his scheme that that gets the most out of him is going to be worth more than people realize and um that's the most eloquent way i can put it but beyond that you and i have just been like transparently Giannis cheerleaders for the last year and we're, we're oh, believers and it's worked man. out <laughs> it's worked out great for us i mean everything that we've predicted has pretty much come true and i'm not going to say he's going to make the finals but I think he's not only the most fearsome player like you're describing in the Eastern Conference. I think he's just flat out the best all-around player in the Eastern Conference. We've talked about everything he can do offensively, how difficult he is to guard. He's also an excellent defensive player, very versatile, blocks a lot of shots, gets a lot of steals, uh, just creates havoc, and then turns you know defense into offense. I hope that they find more pace this year. I hope they're able to get him into the open court more because that will, you know, really make his life easier in the long run if they're able to get easier stuff in transition. He doesn't have to do so much kind of like one-on-one uh, yeah. in the half court and they don't have to ask Middleton to do so much, you know, pound pound pound, you know, take a tough shot even though he's fully capable of hitting them. Uh, I think uh, Budenholzer will, you know, have a, a you know, a very stress that early on in the season and, and kind of keep it going the whole way. Um Basically, I'm a shameless Bucks optimist as of this moment, (laughs) and it's amazing we're here given that that's exactly where we were 12 months ago, and it really did not go according to plan whatsoever. You know, the one thing I would add is when we talk about what went wrong last season, the Bucks roster looks so much worse when Malcolm Brogdon isn't out there as like a third guard and someone who can ha- handle the ball at the end of games because Eric Bledsoe definitely got exposed down the stretch last year and uh, is is one reason to pause before you put the Bucks in the finals. Like guys like Eric Bledsoe, their front line is still kind of iffy in places um but adding brogdon to that rotation gives them one more guy who will be at least solid if not more helpful uh this year and that's like 
it's it it was easy to forget that when we were watching that Bucks team just kind of wheeze to the finish line last year. Um, so no question, he missed he missed almost half the season. And I would also say about Bledsoe, his regular season numbers and impact were much better than his postseason. Like obviously, yeah. like the scary Terry experience was very scary. <laughs> it's hard to shake Bledsoe. that one off. It was pretty. It didn't brutal. go so didn't go so well for him, but he did play well during the regular season. And I mean. What a fleecing that was to get Bledsoe for Greg Monroe. I mean, come on, you know, like Phoenix, what are you doing down there? Of course, our good old buddy Ryan McDonough is just you know, handing out party favors to aspiring Eastern Conference contenders. But I think um, the Brogdon factor is crucial just from the stability standpoint yeah. and not having to go deep into a backcourt where they just were not deep at all, right? They didn't like, have any. Yeah, Jason that's, Terry. that's why I mean, he's important. Yeah, Jason Terry was out there and I was like, you know, Jason Terry would probably be more believable as a coach than as an active NBA player at this point in his life. But he was legitimately playing playoff minutes for them. No question. When they fire Jason Kidd, I mean, it's time to worry. Are they just going <laughs> to side up to a 10-day and have him be the backup point guard? I mean, there was that level of uh, desperation uh, up in Milwaukee last year. But uh, we're back on the hype train with Giannis. Have you seen some of these air Giannis leaks hit the internet? Andrew? I haven't. I haven't. You, I'm counting on you to send me. I've been offline for the last like week or so. I need you to send me some Giannis leaks, please. Well, look, the first pictures don't look great. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. But, but I, I've been uh, I've been told that they are not the final product, which sometimes that just means they like change a little color so they can say that. Mm-hmm. Um I'm hoping for a little more from the Giannis ones uh, from Nike. So guys, if you're on that design team, you're still listening here an hour into a mid-August podcast, don't put out a weak product. We we demand the very <laughs> best for our guy Giannis, uh, the king from overseas or whatever Ethan's prophecy called him. There we go. Um, all right. Peter says, Sharp, I loved how your intangible qualities don't matter in big men take is so stilted by your bias in favor of perimeter gunners that you managed to be so wrong even though Golliver just prior had listed off various big men draft busts who all failed because of intangible flaws I would argue that bigs fail more often because of intangible reasons than guards ever do and um, Peter thank you for your comment here's my response I think that intangibles in big men are almost always the same thing whereas like does this big guy give a shit and does he play hard and does he care about does he really love basketball like almost every time whether it's andrew bynum whether it's greg odin whether it's deandre ayton you know like they all kind of struggle with the same questions whereas I think the guards, so to me, I don't even look at that as like an intangible thing as much, even though I know technically that's what it is. Um, I think the guards, what makes a great guard is harder to explain and more interesting to me. And so that's why, and I do have a bias to perimeter gunners. uh, And you could say that like someone like Jamal Crawford has a quality that I would be looking for in guards, even though he's been like kind of terrible for years now. Um, but uh, that's what I was trying to convey. Did you agree with any of that, Ben? I, I mean, I think that big guys in general get unfairly picked on because they're such obvious targets. Like when big guys don't care about basketball, it's plain as day because they have these giant bodies that they have to haul up and down the court. And if they don't care enough, 
they're going to be the slowest guys, you know, and, and, and if they don't care enough, like they're not going to make the progress and they're going to be throwing up these horrible hook shots that airball and brick and just life is a lot tougher for big guys. So I actually have quite a bit of empathy for big guys. Like one example, you know, we talked about these big guys, you know, who don't care about basketball. I mentioned him earlier, Michael Beasley. Like, would you say that Beasley, you know, cares about that's basketball a, enough? Yeah, that's a good counter like, example for sure. And like, and I'm just saying like, he's a number two guy, but do we ever like say, oh, Beasley, like if he had just dedicated himself to the game, like he doesn't get called out quite as much because he's not seven foot and expected to be, you know, like by, you know, fans of a certain generation of being like a game changing type player, right? Like he clearly was not focused early in his career. He clearly had other things going on off the court. He couldn't uh, keep his mind on basketball, uh, but you know, he's a hooper, right? Like he goes out and he plays in the summer stuff. So he must love basketball because, you know, he's, he's, you know, good friends with KD and all these other guys who have really committed themselves to the game. And so I do think there's just a kind of a double standard at play is my point. I think it's very easy to pick on big guys. Uh, It's, it's the most obvious when they fail, uh, you know, even casual fans can see it. And I just think that, you know, because there had been a bias, I think in, you know, selecting high in the draft for years and years and years of basically always taking the big guy, you know, bet on big, you know, um, I agree with you. That's a, that's a smart point. People remember those mistakes maybe more than the other ones, even though there's an awful lot of, you know, guys, whether it's Michael Beasley, I mean, OJ Mayo is another example. I mean, there's other guys where, you know, they're guards or they're wings and their careers didn't come to fruition or it did, it didn't go as expected for the teams that drafted them. Uh, in part because they didn't commit themselves enough to basketball. Yeah, well, and the reality is, I guess you could look at anyone who succeeds or fails in the NBA and make a good case that they did so because of intangible reasons. So it's kind of a circular conversation regardless. I'm just, the what I was interested in is the difference between a good guard and an elite superstar guard that you could build your team around, which I do think that there's, it's kind of a gray area that's that's harder to quantify with some of that. Um, but your point is well taken <laughs> regarding big men because they have been given a hard time for like 60 years in the NBA. So we should take it easier on the bigs. I agree with that. Yeah, I, well, I think in terms of analyzing, you know, good guards versus great guards, I think the things that go underrated the most are IQ feel and making teammates better right and those kinds of things can be expressed in lots of different ways and those are all completely subjective and one scout could see something that another scout doesn't see but ultimately when you're saying like is this guy going to rise to the category of being like an mvp level candidate or is he just going to be a good scoring guard who's out there getting points but not really making his team better um you know those are the things that you know tend to be the difference makers in my opinion cool um moving on from joseph speaking of scoring guards he says there i was enjoying my day off from work and listening to my favorite podcast open floor all was going well ben was praising jamal murray and i couldn't have been happier and then andrew chimed in andrew called jamal murray (laughs) quote unquote soft what the hell jamal murray has the swagger of an all-star Did Andrew not watch any of the games between the Nuggets and Lakers last year? At the end of one Mm. matchup, Murray dribbled around Lonzo Ball, and in another game, he taunted the Lakers bench after drilling a three by licking his fingers because he was barbecuing their defense. (laughs) Um, Look, I do want to take back the calling Jamal Murray soft outright. I've just... 
what I what I meant is that I had a passing thought. I don't want to be the guy who's out here calling guys soft. Jamal Murray is pretty awesome, um, and I hope that he becomes more consistent because going back to Kentucky, he's had these like ten minute bursts where he looks amazing, and then he kind of disappears for a little while. And I hope that this is the year that he's able to put it together for eighty two games, just kind of lighting people up. I will say the licking your fingers because you're barbecuing their defense isn't actually <laughs> that cool a celebration. It's not something I would be bragging about. Um, but, you know, he's learning. He's young. I think that's the takeaway is he's got time to develop those celebrations. Well, I think the takeaway is that Joseph just made you retreat. Like, I can't imagine. I don't know if I've ever been able to get you back down that hard that quickly on no. any point in the history <laughs> of this podcast. So it's great to see you reverse course. But here's the real question, because, you know, we were having the discussion about Jamal Murray, like, would you wear his jersey? And I was saying, you know, it's not the worst investment in the world. You should think about it. Now that you've decided he's not sopped, number one, would you wear a Jamal Murray jersey? No. Now that you've given it some more thought. And then number two, what would you think if you saw someone wearing a Jamal jersey? Because before you were really trying to clown people who might buy his jersey. Okay, let, let me let me add a couple caveats to what I was saying. Number one, if you're from Canada, it's different because Jamal Murray is is one of the coolest players that you have ever produced as a nation. So if you're Canadian and repping <laughs> yeah. Jamal Murray, go for it. No judgment from me. If you're an American living outside of Denver repping Jamal Murray, I again come back to the idea that you are probably trying too hard to to look for like a hip young player. To I, I would prefer to have a Will Barton jersey if I were choosing from Nuggets jerseys because again, you said like the big men jerseys are always kind of dicey, but Will Barton's pretty awesome. Um, he's from so nearby Baltimore. What you're, what you're- what you're basically saying, though, it's like if it's Jamal Murray, Andrew Wiggins, Jamal McGlure, or an R.J. Barrett Duke jersey, you're saying you'd give it to Jamal Murray now? I, you know what? I would. And the Duke thing, we're going to have to talk about this at some point in the fall because Duke is so interesting and exciting that like we could have a, a weekly Duke basketball segment on this podcast, but at the same time... Like, Duke, honest to God, still just makes me sick, and I hate how successful they've been over the last four or five years recruiting, and so we could we could also go the other direction and refuse to acknowledge how cool this team has the chance to be and, uh, and just wait uh, until well, they're Andrew, all in the NBA. I don't know, man. I look at a guy like Coach K, what he's done. I feel like he should probably have equity in that university, don't you think? I mean, just <laughs> you know what? I'm the sure unbelievable he's getting paid. track record. Coach of K success. is getting paid in all sorts of shady ass ways. Don't you worry, man. He doesn't need equity in Duke. Um, but yes, apology. And you know what? It wasn't Joseph's email. It was somebody added Jamal Murray on Twitter. Being, which please don't ever do this and don't ever be that guy. But they added him saying, Andrew, like, Andrew Sharp thinks you're soft or whatever. And I did kind of pause and be like, I don't want to be out here calling some 21-year-old kid soft. So that's what did it and prompted some uh, retreat on my part. Uh, and Well, I like, I like to see this as evolution, as maturity. But I also think, look, that was 
you called him saw from an Andrew Sharp report segment. So you defeated the point of the Andrew Sharp reports, which is supposed to be what you truly feel getting it off your chest and just letting the chips lie where they may. Uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to strike that one from the record. We're not going to hold it against you, but we are going to note the fact that you backed down. Yeah. Uh, you know what I truly feel? Don't lick your fingers in a, in the middle of a sporting <laughs> event, okay? That's my number one Jamal Murray take. It reminds me of Jameis Winston, which is never a good thing. Um, but moving on to the podium, Kirk says, regarding my favorite murder, Ben Golliver bailing on a podcast because the first five minutes were someone droning on about something that he didn't care about betrays a real lack of podcast awareness. Do you have a response? Uh, Oh, of course I do. Well, Kirk, first of all, you do care because I see you every single week in our emails letting us know. So don't pretend that nobody cares what I'm droning on about. There's at least one person who cares, and it's you. Um, (laughs) Second of all, when we do our you know plugs for like openfloormail at gmail.com, I get hate mail, Andrew, if I repeat them twice we repeat that address twice in a row because people say oh it drags on too long you don't need to have the dramatic pause first of all repeating it increases the number of people who email so it does have a point there's a reason why i do it second of all it takes a grand total of like 15 seconds imagine if i was plugging our open floor mail at gmail.com email for five full minutes at the start of the episode and then you would have an accurate comparison to what was happening other places (laughs) look there is usually a point to what I'm drown, uh, droning on about, and it's not trying to sell a book. Like, if we had a book, Andrew, you know, like if you and I co-wrote a book, yeah. first of all, I would have to do all of the promotion because you would just kind of hide and, and just kind of nervously laugh over there about the book, and I'd have to be, you know, out here telling everyone True. where they can buy it's it on Amazon for. and so I w- forth. I would write the book. You could promote it. We'd be set. I would not promote it for five straight minutes. That's all I'm saying. And look, I understand that it maybe hit too close to home for people who really like their podcast. It wasn't necessarily a representative sample. I completely understand that. I'm just saying five full minutes of book promotion, too much. Bridge okay. too far. Okay. Well, listen, as a de facto supporter of My Favorite Murder, I will uh, point out that their book is currently number one on the charts. Like, I guess it's... 14 months in advance or or 16 months in advance of its release. So clearly they're doing something right. Although I don't want to encourage more promotion on your end. So we'll move on on that note. Uh, So you're, you're saying if I ask for five star reviews on Apple podcasts for the next five minutes straight, we're going to be number one on Apple podcast sports (laughs) category. I don't think we're as good at promotion as they are. (laughs) We got to work on it. That's a goal for the 2019 season. Uh, but speaking of well, books. That's, that's on your shoulders, okay? Because they do banter throughout the whole five minutes about selling the book. So, you know, if we're going to really do this, let's let's do it right. Okay. Well, everyone go leave us a, a five-star review in iTunes, okay? That's my contribution to the promotion efforts. Um, Matthew says, a summer podcast cannot be complete without some suggestions of books to read by the beach. So what are your recommendations? I expect Ben to recommend My First Summer in the Sierra by John Muir. But what about you, Andrew? Um, We have gotten the book recommendation question a number of times this summer, and I think now we're officially like too late because most people are probably going back to work. Uh, I am on vacation now and reading a book called Dark Money by by Jane Mayer. And uh, that's about the uh, 
Koch brothers and the f- money that's funding the far right and, and, and has funded it over the last like 20 to 30 years. And I can't honestly recommend it. It's been a little bit demoralizing to read, uh, but it's well reported. And then I also have a, a novel called The Secret History by Donna Tart that I'm going to try and read later on in this trip. But that's about it. I don't know. I, I don't have many other recommendations. Do you? What do you have, Ben? Well, I would say that, first of all, because I'm writing so much for the top 100 that I'm not reading a ton. I'm actually kind of leaning more heavily on like Netflix and kind of getting caught up uh, over there. I don't know if you've seen, there's a behind the scenes Michigan football documentary that Amazon Originals did, uh, streaming video. It's like very intense and deep. You probably haven't watched it, but it's amazing. Like every feeling that you have as a Michigan football fan, just being completely let down by the quarterbacks year in and year out (laughs) is nothing compared to the feeling that the coaches have of being let down by the quarterbacks that they've tried to groom for 12 straight months. And so the behind the scene footage from that uh, was really impressive. Uh, In terms of books, uh, one that I would recommend for people for summer, it's called The Ways of White Folks by Langston Hughes. People know his poetry. It's a short story collection. It is like acerbic wit. It's very clean writing. It's not overly complicated or complex, but he makes so many observations about the state of race relations between black people and white people in the 1920s and 30s. I mean, given everything that's happened here over the last 18 months, you know, a lot of it will, you know, ring very profoundly if you read it. And because they're short stories, it's great for the beach. Uh, basically, every story will leave you kind of with something to think about or scratching your head or sometimes even just laughing at the way he's characterized something that's like, you know, a very grave topic. Um, and I would just recommend that to people if you're looking for something a little bit meatier, uh, you know, or different. But your recommendation on Dark Money, it had me thinking because when you first said it, I was like, oh, yeah, I've read that. But I actually haven't read it. I've just listened to like a book club podcast about that book. And I find myself doing that more and more recently where like I'm not really reading books, but I'm hearing other people explain the books that they read in podcast form. (laughs) I don't know if that makes me like a secondary, like a second level, uh, you know, intellectual uh, compared to where maybe I should be like getting this knowledge myself. But I think because of practicality reasons, uh, because of sort of time management, I'm at that stage in my life. I don't know if that's a good development or a bad development. Like, yeah. do you wish you read more books? I definitely do. But when you're in the take game, you know, you've got a lot of top 100 uh, entries to write and churn out. So I, I don't blame you for just focusing on Netflix for a little while. Yeah, I've also started Evil Genius. See, that Evil Genius was what I thought my favorite murder was going to be because they just dove right in, no book pushing, just yeah, straight no into this, this crazy decapitation murder from Pennsylvania. No spoilers. Um, you know, check out Evil Genius on Netflix. That's I've, pretty good too. I've heard good things. And before we move on to the final question, uh, I will say, at, right before we came on this podcast, I'm in a wins pool with all my college friends for college football every year. And my first pick this year, for better or worse, was Michigan football. So I'm counting on Shea Patterson to be the first non-terrible quarterback for Michigan. Uh, And yeah, I don't know if that's a good thing for for you. Uh, I I did win last year, though, so we'll see. We'll see if I can keep that rolling. You're you're taking them on the road against Notre Dame? 
No, no, no. You take like the season-long win totals. I do think that they're going to win the the Notre Dame game, but I also think that they're going to win like ten or eleven games this year and surprise some people. Oh no, that means we're only going to win seven. <laughs> Famous last words. Um, all right, one more. Actually, two more. Andrew says. I love that you guys say you refuse to release a one hour and 40 minute podcast in the middle of a podcast that regularly runs an hour and 30 minutes in the off season. And again, I, look, I have no, it, it pisses me off every week <laughs> that we go over an hour, but here we are at an hour and a half. What can you do? Um, Brent says, no, hold on, hold on. In your defense, everyone has these arbitrary lines. Like, you know, emailer, I would ask you, like, if you weighed, say, 220, you know, versus 219, doesn't that extra pound make an awful lot of mental difference? Or if you weigh 199 versus 200, don't you feel a lot better about yourself uh, at 199? If you buy a car and you get it for, you know, 24,999, doesn't that feel a lot better than paying 25,000 for it? That's where Andrew's going with this very arbitrary 100 minute long podcast uh, limit. Okay. It's not like you're on an Island. Uh, you're just, you know, a part of a major psychological phenomenon that really impacts everyone and is evident in all sorts of different pricing schemes and sales and and everything else out there. So ease up. Okay. Sharp is not crazy on this. An hour and 30 minutes is the line. Okay. That's the line that we've chosen to draw for real. We start every podcast with the hour being the line, but hour 30 is for real. And Brent says, please discuss this photo of Ben ziplining. And he has a screenshot from your Instagram over the weekend. I believe, were you in Catalina? Okay, so there's not really much of a story to it. I I went on a zipline, Andrew. I mean, great story. But (laughs) I would say one of my New Year's resolutions this year was to, to incorporate more fruit into my diet, which has not gone that well. So I had a second resolution which was try to be just a little bit more spontaneous you know i get stuck in my routine stuck in my ways i'm very unbending as i'm sure you and all of our listeners can attest so i did a hike on catalina lo and behold there was a uh, zip line set up at the end of it where you could sort of you know take this little safety course and then you go down five lines of, uh, of zip lines back and forth across this gigantic canyon not something I usually do. As you can imagine, in my rocking chair, I don't exactly have a lot of adrenaline junkie moments. Right. However, I decided to, to take the plunge. I did it. And then the best part was they had cameras you know, strategically placed around the course. I was able to give a little, you know, uh, you know, three-pointer salute uh, that, to one of the cameras on so the way down. That would be my question is, wh- why did you choose the three goggles as your uh, trademark gesture uh, on the zip line? Well, what was I going to do? Like you know, Bloods and Crip gang signs? I mean, you'll, you have to keep one <laughs> hand on the thing. So you can only throw up one hand. There's only so much you can do. You can't even really do a dab, which I don't think that's cool anymore. I think that was like a 2015 thing. Yeah, dabs, um, dabs so, are cool among like fifth and sixth graders now, not mainstream. Oh, perfect. Well, I just heard about them. So I went with the three goggles because it's easier to, you know, the, the emoji, the, the three-figured emoji is very popular, you know okay, everything's all good. I, I dropped that into my text message conversations regularly. It was, you know, basically, <laughs> Andrew, to be honest, I did it for the gram, okay? Yeah, Let's you, just you cut did, the long did. story short. I did it for the gram. And I've been getting some questions from our listeners who are new to Instagram. They say, I can't see your pictures on your page. Guys, 
You have to go to the stories feature. They disappear after 24 hours. You have to consume my content 24-7, 365, or you're going to miss out. That's Ben.Golliver on Instagram. And now, Andrew, you're going to help me plug my Instagram account for another five minutes here no. uh, so we can keep up with our <laughs> podcast competition. Look, nothing in the history of this podcast has ever been plugged harder than you have plugged your Instagram account over the last year and a half. I will say... I was the person who convinced you to get on Instagram. I'm mad at you for not posting the three goggles photo as a regular photo and just you did it in stories. So maybe there's still time to remedy that. Um, I've never understood the three goggles celebration in general. So that's probably another issue that we can delve into next week, perhaps. Uh, But yeah, that's that's all I got. It was a. It looked like a great weekend, and there's never a bad zipline. I'm I'm pro zipline wherever you are. Yeah, it had been a long time since I'd been on a zipline. The technology, they have brakes now, Andrew. I didn't know that they had brakes, so that really makes it a lot easier. You know, it's you great. really can't screw it up. You, Easier you don't to even pose necessarily too, have for to, sure. to hold on. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. But the, the moral of that story, the reason why we discuss it is, Add some spontaneity to your life, Andrew. When you finish this phone call with me and you send in your file and the description to Lou and you know you, you go about your day, look around tonight. Find a way to sp- be spontaneous. Maybe it's to jump into a body of water with all of your clothes on like a Jim Harbaugh might. Uh, you know, Maybe it's to try something new at dinner. Maybe it's to you know learn a new skill like juggling razors or something else along those lines. Test your own personal limits and watch how much you impress everyone around you with your newfound abilities and interests. You'll be surprised. On that note, I think everyone should email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And like Andrew said earlier, go to our Apple podcast page, search for Open Floor. It's two words. Find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy. We are the Postmates of podcasts. Andrew, Until next week, I will talk to you. All right, man. I'm going to go find a zip line. I'll talk to you soon. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.